0: The world's heart seems to always be on fire. Some feel more so now than in the past. And the water to cool that fire perhaps even to put it out, is the Dharma. The Buddha spoke this way a long time ago. With the Kalesas being the fire, these extraordinary energies that in their own way are impersonal and that are in the heart of everything, the whole world. As we were trying to point out for a couple of evenings, the samadhi practice, the way of collectedness and calm, and the vipassana practice, the way of discernment or insight are the guardians of the heart. The samadhi practice temporarily calms the heart down, soothes the heart, soothes the heart. The Kalesas thin out a bit, settle like sediment, settle to the bottom. There's an experience of calm and as the practice deepens, that calm deepens. That's what the samadhi practice, one way that you can tell that the samadhi is developing is there's more calm available. During the time that the heart rests in the calm, many benefits develop. Its ability to concentrate in the future is strengthened. Its ability to be mindful is strengthened. The amount of energy or effort that it has available is stronger, is also strengthened. Some of the tendencies, the kalesas, are weakened, even though we're, strictly speaking, not using wisdom yet. It's as if the kalesas are like muscles, and when they exercise themselves, they get stronger. We feed them a lot, not knowing that we are. And so, if there are periods when there's quiet, calm stillness, those tendencies are not exercised and they become somewhat weaker. For example, delusion or <clears throat> absent mindedness gets a little weaker because here are moments where we're not being blinded into thinking that the ultimate happiness in the world comes from objects, especially when they're material objects. In other words, we give it a rest, if you've heard that phrase. And during the time that we give it a rest, uh, in addition to the benefit, the inner benefit of just dwelling in calm, resting, rejuvenating, refreshing ourselves, some of those tendencies are weakened. They go into abeyance. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in, let's say, deep states of calm. But sometimes, even for just a few moments, there are no hindrances dominating the field. It's just 20 seconds of calm and we're happy because we don't have unwanted thoughts. The unwanted thoughts are, are suffering. The mind seems to have this ability to produce thoughts which harm itself. But, as we pointed out, this calm or the samadhi practice does not uproot the kalesas. It gives it a rest Another benefit that comes is, as we enter into some kind of calm, perhaps more than we've tasted, it becomes easier when we look back at the absence of calm to understand what it is that brought us here in the first place. That is, perhaps if we went around the room, many people would say, well, I've come here because I feel overworked or tired or under a lot of stress. So we all know that. My, my mind is working too hard. Um, going too quickly. But when you drop into silence, especially as the silence becomes deafening, as it can in this practice, you get a sense of why, of what it is about the misuse of the mind that's so painful to the heart. And so it becomes harder to do some of those things. Uh, I had a teacher some years ago We were discussing right speech, and probably many of you know that right speech has to do with not lying, not using harsh language, not using talk that divides people from each other, and uh, speaking in ways that have some substance, that are not just trivial or petty. Then he added, he said, but if you want a really subtle understanding of uh, right speech, he said, it's when you enter into silence. Silence is so beautiful, there's such a scarcity of it, that when we tap it, even for a little while, it's as if there's a standard accompanying you now, and you'd be ashamed of yourself if you just said anything that would not be worthy of the silence. That is, to just break the silence at all, or as they say in Zen sometimes, uh, open your mouth and you're wrong. Maybe that's just, uh, maybe that's true in one sense. But as you start to taste the silence, uh, you don't want to break it. If you're going to talk, uh, then, it, sh- then you sh- it shouldn't be something that you're embarrassed by. And it's easier to get embarrassed as the mind becomes more still because then it starts to hear what it's saying. It starts to hear what it's thinking. It starts to hear what it's saying. And um, Perhaps some of you have seen that sometimes in the practice where as the practice gets deeper we become in certain ways more unhappy thinking that the practice makes us more unhappy. Whereas really we're seeing the way things have been And uh, puts a chill up. You know, like chalk on the blackboard when it screeches. Grammar school days, do you remember? (laughs) Maybe they have new kinds of chalk that don't do that now. (laughs) And the development of samadhi is a basis for doing the work of wisdom. And the work of wisdom has to do with undercutting or eliminating the problem altogether, that is the Uh And in this tradition, probably most of you have heard of the term Nirvana or Nibbana, and that's a heart totally purified of kilesas. It's another way to look at it. No more blemishes. The heart's at peace with itself completely. It isn't led astray. Uh, pushed in directions that are really not to its own benefit. And one way to conceive of it is the the heart itself is uh, wrapped in kalesas or embedded. Some of the uh, these tendencies are embedded in the heart. One of the main calices that we have to understand, of course, is the one of unawareness or delusion or ignorance. Goes by many names. That one is so uh, primary because it does wrap the heart, and it assures us of not learning too much from what we do. As we make mistakes, you know, it's cause and effect. We do, we stick our hand in the fire and we get burned, and we learn that one by and large. But there are many kinds of fire. And that's what the Buddha was talking about. The fire he was talking about was the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, which are in the minds of all of us. The mind-heart of all of us. And so we do things that are harmful to ourselves, but then unawareness or avija, make sure that we don't remember that we did that and so we do it again and then we we forget again and then we do it again until we get it. Let me give you a simple example. Uh, This comes up, probably many, if not all of us in this room have experienced this, but a recent uh, interview with someone not here. Um, This person met a man, was very attracted and had a sense of real possibilities. It was a weekend. You probably already know what I'm gonna say. At any rate, the person had was had been very lonely and had a real need for company. And got involved and then somewhere like three days later, when the smoke cleared, just wondered, how did I possibly get involved with that person? I mean Seeing the person as if it's a totally different person, and yet, uh, prior to that awakening of sorts, there was a lot of hope and fantasy and jubilance and excitement. And in a sense, what happens there is that, if there is a, there is a need, let's say because of loneliness, then this craving. accompanied by unawareness. That is, the job of unawareness is to blind us. That's its job. That's what it knows how to do. It doesn't know how to do anything else. We have to understand to have a little compassion for ignorance. Because it knows one thing. It knows how to cover things up, put blinders on us, conceal from us. And it's very good at it. And so it wants to do what it's good at, like us. And so the the craving is there and it's able to accomplish itself because it works in conjunction with delusion. And so it's possible to see what you want to see, what you need to see, in order to give yourself gratification in the immediate moment. And probably there's not much wisdom. Sometimes there's no wisdom and we get hurt badly. And when the smoke clears, the hurt itself, has proclaimed the truth of what was happening. And in retrospect, perhaps you can grasp that why we saw things a certain way was because we needed to see things a certain way. Now, wouldn't it be nice if wisdom uh, could cut through that on Friday night instead of on Monday night? (laughs) Maybe not. Maybe we want that at all costs. I don't know. (laughs) But at any rate, the job of, uh, and the term Panya has been used a few ter- times here. It's a very important term. Uh, perhaps you've seen some of the Buddhist uh, certain images in uh, Mahayana Buddhism. You see a, uh, a yogi in a, a meditative posture with a sword. Sometimes uh, scriptures in one hand, that is the teachings, on one level, just the words. On another level, the actuality. And the sword. Sometimes the sword has light or fire coming out of the end of it. And that's the sword of wisdom. That's in, our, in this tradition, it would be roughly equivalent to satipanya. That is, mindfulness accompanied by discernment. Examining some facet of life with discernment to see what the significance of that which we're examining is. What is the significance of that, the consequences? What is this? Question mark, exclamation point. A very important Zen koan. What is this? You could ask that about anything. It's very helpful. And so the sword is a very powerful image there. And what it does is it cuts through uh, blindness, especially ignorance, and that's the protector of the heart in another way that is samadhi is a protector in its own uh, in its own uh, way it can do certain things as was just mentioned soothe the heart weaken the kalesas. prepare uh prepare the mind for the work of wisdom and wisdom is the guardian of the heart in the sense that it has the strength to cut through the Kalesas. The Kalesas hate wisdom. They hate Sati. They hate to be looked at. Have you seen that yet? Kalesas don't like to be seen. When you look at them, they just kind of run away and squirm or they even fold up and fall apart. They function beautifully in semi and total darkness. They can get away with murder. As soon as the light is flashed on them, it's curtains for the Kalesas. (laughs) Let me give you a few examples of how satipanya, mindfulness working with its companion, wisdom or discernment, uh, is absolutely essential to care for the heart. I'll start with the most trivial, simple minded, or almost that I can think of. I can think of one more trivial, but there's a a fair number of people out here who I know and you've heard it and my vanity prevents me from mentioning that one about yogurt, you know that one. (laughs) You're watching a, um, uh, a horror movie on TV and it's late at night. Maybe that isn't something that we do, but some people do do that. And it's got all kinds of effects and frightening things happening and perhaps monsters and who knows what. And suddenly it works. You feel terrified and frightened. And you break out into a sweat and the heart is throbbing away there. And that can only happen because we've put our sword into our sheath. And that's the whole point of it. You don't want to have wisdom there. If you had wisdom there, you would see that Uh, nothing's really happening. That is, let's say there's this incredible uh, monster, and you know they're getting really good at making monsters now. And it's on the screen and it's two o'clock in the morning and you feel frightened and suddenly you try to find it. Well, you can break open the TV set, you won't find it. (laughs) It's not there. In fact, there's nothing there. They're just some images that are flashing with some sounds and you some tendency in us, some uh, willingness to a kind of a dependent arising. And that's another sense of the, that this science, this horror film is empty of inherent meaning. I'm using it on this because it's the same thing with our mind. That monster did exist. It's not that it didn't exist at all. Uh, There was a monster in that late uh, movie, but that monster didn't have inherent existence. It had a kind of existence, you know, whatever films are made of and all the rest, colors and so forth. Uh, But we impute, temporarily, we impute a reality to it as if it has a kind of solidity and an inherent existence. And that's why we can be frightened in the moment. Now, when wisdom approaches it, discernment enters in there, then we become condescending and chuckle and, oh, for God's sakes. Or we come in and do that to someone else as they're, you know, (laughs) shivering away there. Because we can see what it is, and it's nothing to be afraid of. It's a, a, a concatenation of things which are, in that case, really harmless. Or we have a dream, or let's say a nightmare. And in this nightmare there is a tiger about to devour us. And again we go through the same kinds of things. palpitation, sweat, terror. It is very frightening. I assume we've all had nightmares. And psychophysiologically we go through a lot of what we might go through if a real tiger were chasing us. And then perhaps the alarm goes off and shatters that coming together of delusion and whatever. And in that moment, suddenly the whole thing falls apart. And then we are quite condescending and relieved about, oh, that was just a dream. But we're really happy. Do you Can you remember how happy it is? <laughs> when we find out that it was not really real? It had a certain kind of reality. It, something did happen. But it was a dream tiger eating a dream us. The truth is, there's no problem. All's well. And suddenly there's a a vantage point from which it's seen, uh, an angle from which it's observed, and suddenly the whole thing falls apart. Let's bring it into daily life. These are all really the same example. They can happen... uh, Maybe I will use the yogurt example because there are a lot of people... (laughs) I really like it. (laughs) Someone goes into the supermarket. This is a, a person... and reaches for their favorite brand of yogurt and it's not there. And suddenly there's a kind of a sinking, a slight depression, even an annoyance, suffering, dukkha, the Kalesas. But in that moment, wise attention asserts itself and it sees what has happened. That is, there was an expectation to have that particular brand of yogurt. There was a reaching for it, uh, a kind of a craving for the yogurt, that particular brand. It's not there so that our desire is blocked. And suddenly there's something that is going on. Now, as you know, this can persist, and it was for a few minutes, until the person woke up and looked at that event with discernment, with mindfulness and discernment. Looked at themselves, looked at the empty section in the supermarket, and the whole thing fell apart. It's no problem. You could buy another brand of yogurt. Well, you don't have yogurt that day. Now, if in reaction to that a kind of poor me came up. Again, you can apply apply wisdom there too. That is, what will that really accomplish? Nothing. Okay, another example. This is another real one. Um, I observed this one and uh, you had to see it and then get the story to... That's why it's, I use it a lot because it's a great teaching to me. Uh fellow working as a postman uh, while delivering the mail gets bitten by a dog and a deep bite uh, and very frightening and so forth, so much so that he actually never went back on his route and eventually just quit the post office. Now, there may have been other factors, but it was quite traumatic. And We're sitting in a meditation one group and I see one person sweating Profusely and shaking, and a grimace on his face. And then at the end, we had a go-around, and people talked about what was going on. And I, uh, it was a pretty open group. And he, so I asked him, you know, what was that all about? And he said, well, uh, and he told his story about how he was bitten by a dog, and he said, and I was, that's what was happening. I was being bitten again by that dog, and it was horrible and terrifying and painful. He wasn't being bitten by any dog. He was being bitten by his mind in that moment. The mind just took a big chunk out of something or other. Now, there wasn't any wisdom there. There was no sati panya there at all. There was quite a bit of delusion so that the memory of a previous event in this occasion had the reality, it had the seeming convincingness so much so that there was suffering that went on. Now, had... As soon as we talked, of course, in retrospect, he was able to get an angle on what had happened and let it go. And he saw that it wasn't necessary to really suffer that way. That as he got bitten once, it's not necessary to get bitten twice. Now we move into other areas that are um, perhaps more difficult, but are clearly part of our path. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, was once asked, um, maybe some of you know, that despite the fact that there's been a kind of genocide in Tibet, uh, the Dalai Lama is amazingly generous towards the Chinese people and has said that a large part of his practice is working on the natural tendency to have resentment and hatred for what has been done to the Tibetan people and at the same time is working politically in sensible ways, the best way that he knows how to try and get his country back. But there have been many atrocities and cruelty in Tibet, and cruelties in Tibet uh, by the Chinese. And so this interviewer was a little bit puzzled and said, how is it possible that after all the atrocities that have happened to you, so much suffering to your people, your refugees, that you're able to be so kindly towards the Chinese. He will even say, the Dalai Lama even will say things like to the the Tibetans, try to understand the Chinese who come over are just, they're mainly teenagers, they're young soldiers. They really think we're barbarians. They really think that Buddhism is opium of the masses. They've been brought up that way. They see us and they see Buddhism in a certain way and it's true to them. They can't help themselves, but they are people like us. And this is a test to see uh, how strong our Buddhism is. To not hate in return. Just to give those of you who don't know about this extraordinary person. And there are many other things like it. So he's asked, despite all of this, how can you be so benevolent towards, towards the Chinese? And the Dalai Lama answered, it's bad enough that they took away my country, I don't want them to take away my mind. You see, now, that's really a high level of functioning, of using satipanya to understand that there's nothing particularly gained by destroying your mind because your country has been destroyed. There's nothing particularly to be gained if your house burns down after the immediate shock Which could, of course, last for a while, for your mind to burn down. Five years later, you're still, I had a great house and we built it, you know, and the uh, the fireplace, and it's gone. So, it is possible to learn the art of slipping out of the suffering that's unnecessary. And it's wisdom that enables us to do that. It has to be sensitive enough, it has to have the strength of uh, some degree of samadhi, it has to understand. And here's the, the great job of satipanya, mindfulness plus wisdom, is that it has the job of guarding the heart, of supervising it, of directing it in such a way so that the heart is not harmed time and time again. And in that sense, it's the Kalesa's job to go in the opposite direction. Grab this, push that away, don't pay attention. So those moments when we go unconscious, those are moments of delusion. Right here, we've all done it many, many times. That kalesa is strengthened. You're doing walking meditation and suddenly you're in Toledo, Ohio <laughs> and the legs are moving. Um, those moments, suddenly uh, the practice is snatched away. Right effort is gone. Mindfulness is gone. And that particular kalesa is nourishing itself. It's developing itself, it's strengthening itself. So all of these factors, the whole path, has to do with strengthening Satipanya so that it can accompany us through life. It's not limited to IMS, the week the the retreat of July eighth to whenever. Yeah, that was really great. We did a lot of samadhi practice and satipanya, it was terrific. And wear it like a campaign ribbon. It's meant to accompany us through our daily life from moment to moment, everything that we're doing because that's why it's called a guardian. And that's what we're trying to develop. There are many things that we're doing in our training to help that come about. When the ego strengthens itself and as we all know it uses the stuff of the world to endlessly strengthen itself and actually We've been brought up that way. The world is organized around that. The world is organized, if you think back from very early time, we've been encouraged to be egomaniacs. Make something out of yourself. Don't be a nobody. Of course, those of you who know, when you come here, we have a new kind of greed. We're trying to be a nobody. I don't know if it's any different. But at any rate, so many of the things that we do are beneficial for the ego. It does nourish the ego, but always at the expense of the heart. And it takes a while to see that. We have to hurt ourselves enough times. Many of us don't see it even then. Most of us don't. I mean, if we look around the human race, it has nothing to do whatsoever with how old we are, how long we've lived on the planet, how much suffering we've gone through. We don't necessarily learn from our mistakes. We don't necessarily learn from history. I visit my parents, and they're in a uh, retirement-type place in Florida. And the average age of people is, let's say, 70 and to 90 or so. so there's one person's 100. Uh, the intrigues, the uh, gossip, the backbiting—it's high school. It feels like I'm back in Lincoln High School in New York City. It's exactly the same. Nothing has changed, except fortunately they don't have enough energy to really do each other in. So it's a little bit more benign. But that's only because they can't help it. And one can begin to pay attention with wisdom accompanying us at any age, at any time. We don't seem to learn. The pull of the gratification of the ego is great. The myth that physical objects can really nourish the heart goes on and on and on. It can't. It can be helpful to the body, physical things. And that's good. It has its place. But the heart needs a different kind of nourishment, far more subtle and intimate than any object. The best object you can come up with, the best car or house or... Bathroom, whatever. And so this practice is designed to turn that around. Now, on our own, uh, I don't know that we do that, even if you're trying to be aware. And so, the Dharma teachings, all the things that we're doing, the different, whether it's the study of the scriptures or uh, people trying to help us with teachings, are an attempt to give the heart principles so that, that matter, principles that are real, that lead in a direction that's fruitful, so that the heart can anchor itself. Otherwise we drift aimlessly through this universe, keeping ourselves busy to keep our minds off death. And so at first, a lot of what we're doing has to do with studying Dharma principles, whether we get them through books or from teachers, attempting to reflect on them, chew on them, take them inside, and then live them. And as the practice gets deeper, it's not so much that we're dependent on the internalization of information, let's say wise information, wise principles, but actually we can see for ourselves. As the mind becomes clearer, the the laws of the universe are proclaiming themselves all the time. Impermanence never takes a break. No holidays for impermanence. It's every second, every place, wherever you look, impermanence, impermanence, impermanence. It's telling us that. But we don't see it. So the truth that's proclaimed is a teaching that's coming towards us, but the students aren't there. And so at first, a lot of what we're doing is uh, using... Thought, wise thoughts to help reorient the mind to fill the heart with some food that goes in a direction that actually is in service of the heart to put out the fire and so we need all the help we can get and that's why we use retreats like this on our own it's very difficult now these retreats are one part of an attempt to help strengthen us so that we can take care of ourselves. This practice emphasizes self-reliance. And in a way, success in this practice is when you no longer have the need for help or you're free enough to accept help. Many people can't, again, out of the ego, can't accept help because that would imply that they're uh, somehow not up to snuff. This may be more men than women. I'm not sure about that. It seems so. So, that's uh, what we've been doing, beginning to do, launching that. What I thought would be useful tonight is to see if there are any loose ends, uh, any lack of clarity, any confusion, or anything that's on your mind. It can be testimonials are nice if you have any. I mean, you know, Corrado and I have been, you know, sitting and, we, ha- we don't sit and walk. We sit and listen and talk. While you walk, we go upstairs and listen and talk. And then we come back and sit and then we do more listening and talking. Uh, it be nice if something fruitful has happened to you, but uh, I'm not asking for that. Uh, what I thought what might be good is that we've been talking, all of us, and practicing the development of serenity and a development of uh, reflection or wisdom, and trying to learn in a very practical way how to develop that and how to use it, and now we're kind of riding off into the sunset. Tomorrow is the, is that right? Tomorrow is the end of the retreat. I wasn't sure it was today was Saturday or Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> The Kalesa's at work.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Um, What I thought might be useful is just for us to start, just to talk to each other, also give us an opportunity to start talking a bit, getting uh, ready to go back to the so-called world, real world. Um, It could have to do with the applications of practice in the world, or anything that's not clear about what's been going on this week. It's really very open. And if any of you would like to come up closer to the front, it's, we're, there's a lot of us, but maybe it can be feel more like a discussion or even a dialogue if, we're, if you don't feel like I understand. It's hot. they both are yes there are different kinds of investigation some of you I don't know uh, what Rob is referring to is seeing an old restaurant that had been uh, uh, a place that people went to that I went to a lot and it had become a hangout and then you come back for many years and it had been in Cambridge for a long time long before I got there and you come back and suddenly the same space is occupied by a very um, different kind of setting, a very fashionable dress shop, totally different, and this exact same space. And it was, it was a bit of a shock. And then uh, calming the mind, going as deeply as I was able to, and then taking that in with me, sort of mixing whatever level of uh, concentration that I had with this, because it was affecting me and I was really experiencing what it was working on me. This, these two events being so uh, close together, happening in the same place. And There though, what it was was reflection. It had thinking in it. A fair amount of thinking and churning and then pausing and then an emotion would be aroused and then a kind of an idea and a glimpse. I would say it's uh, somewhat deeper than just ideas. Uh, and it's a kind of reflection that had more depth than it would have had it had more depth because it had a bit of samadhi in it. Uh, another a deeper, and it's the application of wisdom. It's wisdom at work. A deeper level of wisdom is when there are much deeper levels of samadhi, and it's direct perception. It's not really thinking; it's intuitive. That is, uh, that was a reflection on impermanence and change, and it was very helpful to me. It really, in some way, gave me a, a sense of how things are and. One reason those kinds of events are helpful is that it helps you get your values in order. That is, you start to see this is really the way things are. It also teaches about attachment. Now, you can't. impermanence helps us in our practice because the degree to which you see that everything is changing is the degree to which it becomes foolish to get attached to anything. It's unintelligent, it's not a dogma. Or an ideology. If everything is changing, if the world is is really changing, and you get fixed on something, it's a setup. We have to suffer, we must. So it helped me along those lines. But now, supposing I was sitting, and no really no real ideas, and I just there's a part of the body and it's painful and uh, painful feelings, let's say uncomfortable. And then I aim my attention at it. I'm not thinking anything, and suddenly I begin to see. The arising and passing away of pulsations of uh, that, that the pain is not a solid thing. Literally see it, feel it, and uh, throbbing is that what seems to be pain? P A I N is made up of a very rich field of arisings and passings away of sensations, and you get the impact of, that the body isn't as sensitive. It's like having an electronic microscope. You look at one thing and it has one level of reality, which is true at that level, and then suddenly you're given. An intensification of seeing, and you see that what seemed to be solid is nowhere near solid. It's a very alive field. That's a deeper kind of wisdom. Now, one reason that it's deeper, or it can be deeper, is that it can have an impact on the heart. That's much deeper. The heart can really get it. It can be more conviction. Oh, see, we're getting, we're learning about impermanence a lot all over the place. But the level at which we take it in is still relatively superficial. Either because the heart is blocked or the seeing is blocked. It's usually the same thing. Does that make any
1: sense?
2: Yeah, but uh, haven't there been time in this retreat when you suggested investigation without the prerequisite for the uh, depth of stillness that you're talking about now? Yes. still...
0: Yes. That's what I was trying to say a couple of evenings ago. We don't have to wait. Let's say uh, uh, this particular teaching is strongly influenced by the forest the, uh, school in Thailand, as some of you know. And they emphasize a lot of uh, developing samadhi and in t- more technical language uh, feels a very good thing if you can come to apana samadhi, which is a very deep form of samadhi. But as I hope I got across a few evenings ago, it's not saying that you have to wait until you get to Samadhi to use wisdom. Uh, wisdom and calmness develop alongside each other. And so you muster up whatever wisdom you have when you need it. And it does the work it can do. And it's helpful. And then as the wisdom and the calmness grow, well, then you have that to work with. So it's not like we're working, waiting for perfection of samadhi. We're... They're both going together, but there are times, like in a retreat like this, it's an excellent opportunity to develop samadhi. Because look at all the support we're giving each other to stay with that one object. It's harder to do until you get the knack of it if you were home reading it from a book. Just be with the breath and uh, when your mind leaves it, come back. Oh, okay, great, I'll do that. Uh, it doesn't, it's very hard to do that for most of us. So here we're just, you know, ad nauseum. Yeah.
3: Would you recommend an everyday practice that one would maintain in the the everyday world? For example, if you meditate one hour a day,
1: what would be an appropriate practice to do
0: every day? Maharishi says 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't want to undermine Maharishi. (laughs) Which means great seer. Actually, I have a lot of respect. He's opened a lot up by when he came to this country. Uh, I I don't think I think that's your job, not mine, to figure out. You see, for one person, twenty minutes is an eternity, and so if we say sit for an hour, it becomes some grim kind of thing. Another person, four hours is uh, is okay if they have the time. Uh, I can make some rough guidelines because you've all sat, you've all. have you sat for an hour? I don't know. I'm not going to take anything for granted. We've had a few hour sittings. Have you ever done a few of them? Yes. And have you been able to do it in a reasonable way? What does this mean? <laughs> I think I know what it means, but you have to There are other people here who don't have eyes in the back of their head. Yeah,
1: sat for an hour. <laughs> okay.
0: I guess you better I guess you better make it a half hour.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, one one uh, rule of thumb would be to, to pick a time, let's say, let's say if you can do it every day, it would be helpful. Pick a time that's a little bit beyond your capacity, so that there's a challenge in it, but not so much beyond your capacity that it becomes uh, drudgery or oppressive. And then let that grow quite naturally. If you do it, it will. Regularity is very important trying to do it each day. Some people will skip three or four days and sit for two hours, then a week goes by and sit for a month. And That, that isn't so helpful. What is much better is kind of the day in, day out, a kind of a, just a, a smooth rhythm. Uh, it's very important, very helpful. It's hardly a luxury item. I don't know where you live, but for most of us, let's say to spend, if you could, an hour a day, whether it's in one chunk or half an hour twice, to just be with yourself in silence with no particular goal other than to just be still and allow whatever happens to happen. You can use the breath as to steady yourself as we've been doing uh, and then let that grow naturally. Yeah. Uh, it's really hard to generalize, but if I had to, I would say I've, I, I really have worked hard. Delusion has worked hard my kalesa for quite a few years was sort of uh, meditation in action, that we can all do the whole thing right in the middle of the marketplace. And uh, what I've learned is good luck. <laughs> it's not that there isn't tremendous wisdom that can come from that. It can and it does and people in this room are doing it. Uh, But I just haven't found um, I don't see a way of escaping the tremendous help that comes from periodically going away to a place that allows you to just drop all of your cares and obligations and responsibilities and just devote yourself to silent awareness. So I would say it's essential. Now, during your daily life there are things that you can do which can help samadhi practice dramatically. And again, I, I wouldn't dream of generalizing. There, there probably could be people who never do a retreat, at least logically it's possible, but who practice with great sincerity at home whenever they can and who attain what, what is needed. But here are a couple of things that are necessary to do anyway very or helpful to do anyway. Um, we've been talking so much about samadhi and vipassana and balancing those two. And we've left out sila. Carrado mentioned it early on in the retreat. And we haven't talked about it much because you can't do a whole lot wrong here. I mean, the, that is, for example, when you're sitting following the breath, you're probably not also stealing, lying, sexual misconduct, <laughs> killing someone, and uh, shooting up drugs or taking alcohol good chance that you're not doing that or, have, or you've all worked out sophisticated ways of <laughs> getting around that. So that by and large when you're on a retreat, moral integrity or personal integrity is at a, a higher level because it keeps us out of trouble. You know, it's sort of keep those, get those kids off the streets and send them to summer camp somewhere in the city. <laughs> it's like, well, this is the summer camp and we're the kids. So we haven't had to talk about, uh, let's say, uh, um, moral sensitivity, sensitivity to uh, one's own personal integrity so much. But when you leave here, it's going to come back in a big way. All kinds of ethical issues in work and in life come up. Now, uh, the foundation of the practice is that, is the, uh, the five precepts. Probably you all know that by now, which what I just mentioned. Uh, and so, if you can take a look at your life, and if there are loose ends, and there are for all of us, ways in which we're cutting corners in terms of our integrity—a little lying here, a little stealing there—you know, uh, you know—and try to to smooth that out. Try to be honest with yourself, because there's no way that any real samadhi can develop. Oh, I, I have to tell you this story. Some a few people here know this one. There was a, a fellow some years ago who came down from Canada. And uh, he was involved in extortion and kidnapping and uh, dealing in drugs only. Just those three. (laughs) Uh, But he wanted to attain Anattara Samyak Sambodhi. Total, complete enlightenment. And he was so frightened of the, I don't know, the Royal Mounties coming down there or something. At one time, we were in a meditation hall and he was so tense, he fell off his cushion. I mean, just... (laughs) And in the conversation, you know, we thought, well, what happened? He said, well, suddenly it occurred to me all of the things I did. I participated in kidnapping a child. I, you know, I'm, uh, I have other uh, uh, mobsters after me because of money I withheld from it. And he said, and I just became so frightened and tense that I lost sight of where I was and I fell off the cushion. Uh, <laughs> So if we're doing a lot of things wrong and we want to have bliss and calm and serenity how can that be it just it makes no sense so one thing we can do because daily life really challenges us a lot it's very easy to be a little holy yogi here but as soon as we go out into the marketplace it is quite a challenge as we all know and so if you take that on that's a kind of refinement of your life that is very very beneficial and helpful for samadhi practice the other a thing that is uh, helps samadhi is attempting to do each thing thoroughly and wholeheartedly. That is, uh, it's a great way to live. I mean, it's not easy to do, but even the uh, project, just attempting to do it, whenever we do it, it's wonderful. To when we wash the dishes, to to attempt to really wash the dishes, so that our attention's on what we're doing, and let's say you see your mind wander from the dishes. After all, dishes are not worthy of such an important person's work or effort. But then you see that and you come back to the dishes. Is it that different from the breath? So that it's a kind of samadhi in action. Someone's talking to you and the mind spaces out. And you come back. Well, as you try to do that in life, just gently, because otherwise you'll get very tired before it's even 9 o'clock in the morning. Come back, come back, come back and uh, attempt to live that way so that whatever it is we're doing, from the, the most menial, in quotes, thing to really important, significant things, that we're fully there. Uh, some of the ancients had a, a way of looking at this, in uh, an interesting use of the precept on not killing. On one level, not killing is not killing another being, something that's alive. A deep level meaning of not killing is something like this it's not killing life so that for example if you're drinking a glass of water and your mind is on champagne you've just killed life because you neither are uh, fully with the water nor do you really have champagne what you've killed is the quality of your life in that moment and so they would call that killing life and if you were drinking a glass of water and fully drinking a glass of water they call that giving life to life I think that's a neat way to put it. So something like that is very, very helpful as well. That's samadhi in action. And finally, since calm is so helpful, it's, it's not just uh, a concentration exercise, a kind of grim, narrow concentration exercise. The development of calm, I hope that has come through. When the mind becomes steady and uh, calms, and steady and collected. What comes along with that is a calmness and a happiness. The heart fills up with happiness, and as it does, it's more able to investigate. So, if that's so, start to become sensitive to ways in which uh, we're tense in everyday life. You're waiting online at a supermarket, and someone is fumbling for their money, you know, or their wallet, and you start going like that. Well, if you're trying to develop calm, any little thing like that is helpful, and you. It's not that you punish yourself, but you just see in that moment there's irritability or impatience, and you let it go. And then, you, if you can, you come back to something that's a little bit more calm. Well, those seconds add up. And so there's a lot we can do in daily life. And if you can, periodically come to places like IMS or whatever.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So, like, um, more well, I think that's good as long as you don't become puritanical about it because I like to watch TV.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is it okay for it? Can I watch it? Yeah. Because you can just watch TV. What?
1: like
4: radios in the bathroom
0: and TV. I understand what you're saying. It's true. Um, uh, there are all these uh, distractions. In other words, it seems as if it's organized so that we don't have to be with ourselves ever and ever experience any inner discomfort. And that sounds wonderful, what you're, what you're doing for yourself. Do you get uh, judgmental about others?
4: No, well, unfortunately, um, by the time I get up, you know, my husband's gone and I can be, you know, I can't know that Yeah. That <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: I'm a little sensitive to that issue because I like particularly old films, and uh, people who think that well, they know I have a strong interest in, in meditation, and they're sometimes shocked or disappointed, bitterly disappointed, uh, that I I like to go to the movies. So I, I just wanted to, I, I it was for me.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, when you spoke of the chill, you know, the chill that you feel when you begin to see the depth of delusion. Um, is something that's been with me a lot this retreat. And um, I think the samadhi practice has really helped me to, 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 to see that from a whole other level that I really hadn't even begun to see before. Mm-hmm. And um, as, uh, as both you know, I live, I've traveled around a bit, but I live in Brooklyn now. And, um, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of delusion, and there's a lot of anger, and there's a lot of Pain that's so apparent, and um, uh, I've often um, uh, felt myself losing the ability to to find the mind's heart in that environment. Yes. And um, you know, have traveled out and then come back, and I find that um, now I understand a little bit more why I lose that.
0: Why? Why do you lose it?
4: Because I lose myself. Mm-hmm. And um, with the samadhi practice, I feel I have more tools for finding myself in that environment or in any environment. Yes. And uh, I also find it so important for me to come to a place like this and to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to be physically with, uh, with love, um, which I feel all around. Um, I feel, from you and Krato. And and Ajahn Swat was a wonderful teacher for that Mm -hmm. also. And uh, I just feel it's a tremendous gift. Um, And uh, I just wanted to say that.
0: Okay. Um, What you're getting at is a, a very big problem, potentially, for all of us. how to live in a world of non-meditators and even (laughs) meat-eaters. Some people have another agenda. It's not just enough to be a a big meditator but also no meat. Uh, If you read uh, a lot of the teachings of the... Ajahn has lived out most of his 70 years in the forest. And that's a traditional solution to the problem. It goes back to the time of of the Buddha. And... You can hear it in the Buddha and also in some of the ancient commentaries. Essentially, it boils down to those people out there are nuts. You know, take off and go to the forest if you want to if you want to get free. And so you might say, well, what about those of us who live in apartment houses in Brooklyn? Um, it isn't hopeless at all, um, because the real uh, the real forest is not that forest. The real thing is it's inward, so that here what we have to do is we have to make a bad situation into a good situation. What I'm concerned about is a, a pattern that I've seen a lot. Let's say you live in Brooklyn and I know what Brooklyn is like. And finally, whew, you get away to IMS and how wonderful, loving people, vegetables, and you know, all of that. <laughs> and suddenly you can create a new kind of suffering that you never had before. And that is because this retreat does end. Now the practice doesn't end, but the retreat ends and you go back to Brooklyn and it can be worse and you keep having the frame of reference of IMS. Not to remind you to use satipanya in your daily life, to be as mindful and as wise as you can as you move, as you thread your way through the Brooklyn streets, but now you use it in a negative way. It makes Brooklyn seem just awful and unbearable. And uh, you, you look at the people and they look a certain way. And it's a people, it just happens. Now, the practice is not designed to make us more of a misfit than we started out being. Um, so we have to find some way of taking advantage of what we can learn here in this very specialized environment, but then, not, but then not misusing that, what we learn here, so that we now handicap ourselves as we go back to an environment that is almost the polar opposite of here. So one of the things that can help is to, is to conceive of a bad situation is a good situation. And that is what I meant earlier. Uh, in our practice, we're attempting to use everything to promote wisdom. And so now, let's say all of those people... Okay, here's a way of looking at it. I don't know if it will be convincing. You might have to help me. You know the Bodhisattva of compassion? Great Bodhisattva. These are um, Bodhisattva that is just uh, constantly listening for the sounds of suffering in the world and then going. That's what I wanted to know. Is it a thousand? Okay, all these arms, okay, and you know, signifying I guess all the need in the world and all the help that this person is committed to giving. Okay, if you look at it this way, let's say all of the, let's say the noisy people and the rude people and the uh, troubled people that make it so hard for you to live in Brooklyn. Now suddenly, the streets of Brooklyn are teeming with Bodhisattvas. Wherever you look, they're pouring out of every store, every restaurant because they're going to keep pushing your buttons and it gives you the opportunity to free yourself from that mechanical response. Someone comes and they're rude and you, go, you tighten up and go like that. Well now, you've got teachers uh, crawling out of the woodwork. Wherever you look, there's somebody coming up to teach you something. Now, that frame of reference is not just uh, sort of a bad joke or uh, a booby prize. Maybe it is. I hope not. No, it isn't. It definitely isn't. Um, It's a way of uh, an attitude to bring into daily life, to bring the practice into daily life, so that when we find ourselves in situations like this, we still always turn the heart towards Dharma. Always. No matter what's going on. And that's a very difficult but invaluable training. We constantly turn towards the Dharma. Constantly. And so those situations now are seen in a different way. I'm not saying it's easy but it it definitely can be done it is being done there are people in this room who are doing it I'm not one of them but there are some who are doing it
4: I know um, I mean I find that when I'm able to do that when I'm able to keep my heart open and move through the streets that way life Mm -hmm. is very different
0: okay but you see I'm not even saying let's say if you can keep your heart open great but you can't keep it open forever can you? do you? I mean, if so, great, then we have no problem. But it's when it shuts down or when it reacts. Now, one of the there are signs that the samadhi practice is developing. Uh, some is a feeling of a bit more happiness and inner happiness. Another is you become less reactive. It's easier to be in the present moment. There's a certain strength of mind so that this comes at you, you don't automatically react like a machine. It's a little bit more stable. So the degree to which we develop along those lines uh, when we are pushed those are valuable moments when you can't hold that open heart and you close down then you examine it and you see what that's about and then you, perhaps you're back open again. Yeah. Sure.
3: I have a kind of more technical question. In the Is it about your practice? No, it's about meditation. Okay. Now that the Buddhist tradition, you start meta meditation with the meditation on suffering.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And that without, because without understanding of suffering, there is no possibility of meta. Now, I, I mean, the way we did it yesterday was without that. part is there. Yeah. I mean, I mean
0: did you find it valuable?
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay. No,
0: I was wondering if there was any concentration. Well, but there's—it's almost yes. I I hear what you're saying. The uh, the notion of human suffering is so deep in this teaching, the the acknowledgement of it that it would be hard to uh, not have that as a context. But you mean a specific meditation to deepen that at that moment? Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. If one does meta meditation, then compassion comes concurrently and vice versa, so they're really not discreet at all.
0: Okay, what is your view on that, ground?
5: I would be happy to uh, sit if your guide meditation with something meta meditation and that It's I don't know. It's another it's, it's another way of doing it. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds great. I mean, it sounds very useful. But even out of context, we do use metta meditation, as we did. Just and uh, I don't know if you found it beneficial. Then use it. Yeah. It might be more beneficial if preceded by that. Yeah. Great.
2: Um, something that's you know I've been working with beating myself up this last
0: week, um, and I've done fairly well uh, of not beating myself up. Of not beating yourself up? Of
2: not, of stopping to beat myself up. Oh, okay. um, One thing that Cor- Corral talked about earlier was that effort was under our control. Um, but samadhi really isn't. It's really a fruit. You, know, where, where you, can't, you can't force samadhi. You can only have the effort. And then samadhi comes. Where does mindfulness fit in? Um, because I find that it's somewhat under your control but really only the effort towards mindfulness is is under control. Sometimes you try but you're gone. Your your mindfulness isn't there. And that was something I was beating myself up about when I started looking at it and I was really wondering where, where does
0: that fit? Mindfulness is in the middle of everything. Uh we can't carry out anything really that we talk about even if mindfulness is uh, let's say right speech. If there's no mindfulness, you don't, you're not aware that you're about to lie. So mindfulness is, plays a central part in the development of samadhi. Uh, mainly it supervises what's going on. For example, it sees if you're not on the breath. Now, And we're practicing that too. Uh, many of these qualities are cultivated and developed and then there comes a time where they become much more spontaneous. Uh, Perhaps some of you have tasted this. Let's say you're practicing mindfulness, and you can do that. You can put your attention on the breath, or feel the feet as you walk, time and time again. Uh, But that ability to do that gets stronger if you do it, and sometimes it feels as if there's a current of mindfulness following you around, and that it's like a gift. You're just quite awake to what's happening, and then you lose it. now, the effort is needed to... okay. Let's, let's work the whole thing out. You need, right intention is the thought to even do the thing. Somebody has told us that there's something valuable about being mindful or being aware. Uh, those of you who have read Krishnamurti, that's the core of his teaching. So that suddenly there's a message. It's extremely helpful to pay attention. Now, we're paying somewhat, attention somewhat, so now there's a new intention in the mind, and it remembers to do it. So that there's the intention, right thought or right intention. Then it takes effort to turn towards the breath, balanced effort. Now even there, mindfulness is necessary. If you force your attention to the breath, you're going to set up. Uh, you're going to beat your, You're going to uh, defeat the process. Mindfulness has got this. Uh, it's a magical kind of thing, even though it's so simple in a way. In that it has this capacity to set things right, you know, to balance things. It sees what's off. So the mindfulness accompanies the whole process, and it sees you. Uh, you come to the breath. The concentration is the ability to stick to the object, and mindfulness is there as well. Sometimes it's very strong or weak, and in the samadhi practice, we're mainly we're very concerned about being able to stick to the object, but mindfulness is there as well. And mindfulness is what can help you not beat up on yourself. Because it, it sees what that's about. When it's accompanied by wisdom. I guess, okay. But you put effort
2: towards mindfulness. And sometimes mindfulness doesn't come. Even though you put the effort there.
0: Have you ever found that? Sure.
2: you be know, you, going very mindful.
1: And you're, you're still
0: putting the effort. Effort is, in a sense, neutral. That is effort into what we, let's say you think of energy as pure energy. And in a way, it's a very profound choice that we all face. We all have a certain amount of energy and also time on this planet. How do you want to use it? How do you want to use your energy? Now, what this is saying, at least use some of it to direct your attention to what is happening right now. So that the effort is needed for mindfulness, yes. But then the mindfulness itself sees what's happening. Now sometimes the mindfulness, when it gets strong, it's not as if you have to, it feels as if it's effortless. There's just a way, now sometimes even a different term is even used, like awareness. Different teachers use different terms. Uh, mindfulness is something you practice. This is one way to look at it. And sometimes the mind explodes into it or ripens or opens into a kind of awareness that's totally effortless. And you can't practice that. Suddenly, you find yourself there. There's a, a, an alert quality, and you're seeing it's all happening. You're just automatically mindful of everything, and there's no effort in that. It doesn't feel as if there's any effort. But the pra- I'm interested in what, in, not in it being theoretical, but in how you're harming your own heart and using you're using the practice and harming yourself. It's not designed to do that. Well, I guess that's what, what I'm getting
2: at. Is that sometimes there's the effort to be mindful?
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And you, just, you get periods where you just can't. You just, it doesn't, somehow, the mindfulness doesn't seem
0: to come. Oh, wait a minute. What do you mean by, Do you is there some kind of result you want out of the mindfulness? No. Just to a, to a buzz? Happened, or? Just
2: to see what's happening. Sometimes it's just like a fog.
0: Yes. Okay, so you, you turn towards the object, but it's a fog. Right. Oh. And at that point, you know. the mindfulness is probably weak at that moment. But you've you've tried to do it. Gets stronger through use. I
3: was so weak about seeing the
0: thought. Seeing what? The thought. Well, if you're seeing it, see, then that that would be a a medicine for that. That is, uh, let's take sleepiness. When we're sleepy, we're not. The problem is we're not very mindful. But the 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 beauty of the whole thing is, you can then, if you can remember, form the intention and muster up some effort, you can then look at the sleepiness. And sometimes. You have this very alert quality that's seeing you like that, or you wake up out of the sleepiness by turning mindfulness on sleepiness. But sometimes you can't I guess I see the same point. Sometimes you very clearly see the fog. Mm-hmm. But, you, but then, then that
2: you could see through the fog. You know, you could have the clear mindfulness but then
0: you start again and trying to get in this layer of not mindfulness. It's you see what you can see. You see you're you're there's it's 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 what comes across is you're beating up. It's the same as all of us when we do that. You have some gaining idea. It's greed, isn't it? I mean, you, there's some your practice is ambitious. Now we need tremendous energy in the practice. I don't don't take that as I'm not saying you're a bad person. You're a greedy person. No, this is important. The places get misused. When we talk about greed, in this instance, let's say, what I'm aiming at is not saying that Craig is a greedy person, but that when the kalesa of greed is in operation, Craig suffers and can't accomplish this this that you want to get and suffers. Can you hear the difference? Right. Okay.
2: I guess I'm just looking more for some support of the idea that if you see the fog, that's enough.
0: And enough for what? Ah. Enough for what? For that. For that. Okay. you know what I'm saying? Well, you know, if there's clarity seeing the fog, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Because okay, then what's the problem? I guess there's not. Well, okay, the problem, let's say take effort. Let's come back to effort because it seems that's where the problem is coming out of and then it proliferates. There's not Effort is needed. There's nothing wrong with effort. You can't accomplish anything worthwhile in life without effort. And we're undertaking an attempt to wake up and to free ourselves. It takes enormous effort and energy. The problem isn't the effort. The problem is that all too often the effort is accompanied by anxiety or pride. That it's not the effort has got some imbalance in it. It's uh, it's mixed in with the anxiety because the effort is very concerned about what it wants to get. From, I'm applying this effort because I want to get something out of it. And so we're, we're using the effort, but we're also very concerned about results. And there's anxiety there because we don't always get what we want, as the song goes. Right? Okay. Or there's pride. Sometimes people, things are humming along and we feel, oh, I've just got incredible uh, samadhi and, and all the rest of this. And then that pollutes it eventually in a somewhat different way. Now, mindfulness comes in and sees that. Mindfulness can see that there's something extra in the effort. It's not just taking us from wherever we were back to the breath, but there's an extra push in it because we're trying to get somewhere. And at that point, sometimes the investigation inevitably turns on the self. It's some uh, inadequacy that we think we have and that we think will be corrected if we can get the perfect samadhi. and and It has to do with self-images. Images images of what we think we used to be and what we think we are now and what we might be if we do this retreat. And so it's torture. It's a lot easier. It's lighter. And that's why the retreats are always accompanied by that. It's this amazing blend. It's strenuous and very delicate. I don't have one word. If anyone comes up with one, help me out. The practice is strenuous, but it's also delicate. we are trying to get somewhere. We're trying to get free. But the only way you get there is by being fully in the present moment. That's what takes you there, not trying to get any get there. Does that make any sense? Oh,
2: yeah.
0: Yeah.
5: Will you speak a bit more about the moment of coming back to the breath process that you call crucial or essential?
0: The, the coming back? The coming. It's not a very. But, but I understand. Back. Yes. That's very.
5: More often than not, or quite often, when I realize that I've been off, I'm already back to the breath, Mm
0: -hmm.
5: and I don't know if I've missed a step.
0: Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, As you start doing this, uh, uh, that happens. You automatically come back, and that's a good. That's a a step in the direction of being able to stick with the breath more frequently, and also uh, not being getting lost when you get when you leave the breath not getting lost in that which has taken you away for as long a period of time.
5: Is there, what is there is a
0: split second. Some time has elapsed. If you've been somewhere else but now the mind let's say see as the mind starts to fully appreciate the value of let's say the samadhi practice or the value of attention the value of mindfulness uh, this is why it's sometimes called joyful effort. It's not joyful effort for most of us at the beginning. It's hardly. But it can blossom and ripen into joyful effort because even if you're working on some sticky things, the practice is you're working on behalf of something that's beneficial and you know it. You know that this is a, a, a wonderful way to spend your life. You really know it. It's not even faith. It's beyond faith. Because it's been demonstrated to you at some degree of depth time and time again so that uh, the coming back is like a reflex. and There's still a gap because if you've been taken away, there is that slight, maybe it's a split second, and then it comes back. Even when you land on the breath, uh, mindfulness can show you the following thing. Have any of you seen this? Let's say you're with a breath. Let's say it's just an in-breath. Breathing in, just an in-breath. When you look carefully, sometimes you'll see that the mind is at the be- uh, on the breath at the beginning, and then it slips off, and then it comes back at the end. You've seen that, okay? Uh, and then when you see that, uh, just the seeing of it can often be very helpful. And eventually, you learn how to stick to the breath during the entire duration of a breath. So these are the kinds of things that happen. Now, there are other, uh, the other aspect of the coming back has to do with what Craig was asking, because. If you're really trying to get somewhere and ambitious, or if you're very self-punitive, you know you, you're, there's a lot of self—not uh, liking yourself too much for reasons in our biography. Uh, in some way, we leave the breath, and then there's a stubborn part of ourselves that says, "That's bad. You have weak concentration. You're you're a rotten yogi," and get back there fast. And so you whip it back. Well. What's wrong with it is that whole. It's it's usually a sign of something like that, and so in the easing back, what we're trying to do is develop this gliding back, easing back without blame. Now, despite no matter how hard we all try, blame comes up because the self will claim it, and the self doesn't care what I've said. The Kalesas have a, a rich feel there, you know, it's the, the uh, of uh, hatred. Only the hatred now is towards ourselves, and. You can see that, even in a breath, and that's wisdom at work. Wisdom then can chip away at that, and now suddenly we're not as preoccupied with how awful we are, or how everything we touch turns to something not so good. What is what is the heart of your question? Is that getting at it, or if not, let's try again.
5: I'm not sure if there should be some moment or instant of, of recognition and...
1: To
2: oh,
0: I see. No, don't worry. That's uh, that's uh, if you were to get really to con- make it It's simpler than that. that. That's thinking. It's it Just come back. I, and I'm saying that to just ease that process. And if you find yourself back, great. So much the better. Yeah. Please. Sure. Preliminary
5: question. When do you get your voice back?
1: Okay. I am
5: First, I've, I've spoken, uh, tried to speak loudly in quite a right. <coughs> I simply want to give you a testimonial.
0: Good, we need one at this point.
1: <laughs> this, uh,
5: this retreat uh, was a gift to me from someone who quite clearly cares for me. Uh, <coughs> got my mind out to have a rock and play games and Dave, my mind's been figuring out what's the greatest gift you ever got in your life, and I must say that this is it this is really it. And I hope you no know, one minds by mentioning guns in this uh, place you can out distance the 22 single shot Remington rifle that you <laughs> 12 years old. I finally figured out what was the other, you know, the rival. (laughs) um, Before I came here, I deliberately refused to acquire anything but the most casual intellectual knowledge about the Mm possibility.
1: Because
5: I wanted to experience now that I've experienced
1: it, I can study it.
5: I don't know how. Well, I've spent a number of years on this earth. Um, and I've been stumbling around, developing my own way of, of doing things, wisdom, as best I can. And one thing, really.
0: happy for you How do you feel that the samadhi helped you? for no green stamps or warranties <laughs> fees or... here. <laughs> okay. yeah. Any questions about the daily life? We'll be going back to wherever we've come from about applications of this.
1: <laughs> of a different race. Right, I mean, exactly. Is. And so the
3: object is to get through the day as purely as possible and maintain own integrity and blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, uh, lose one's heart in terms of compassion and seeing that in fact these people with the degrees of delusion and greed and hatred and everything else are actually no different And if you maintain that kind of dualistic view, I feel that
0: it's very, very harmful, ultimately, to, to practice Do you feel the teaching is suggesting a dualistic view? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. No, the, sure. Uh, more and more, uh, when people are unpleasant with us, uh, you can see that the unpleasant is coming out of their own suffering and there's less necessity to punish them for it uh, but to behave in some way that takes into account that the person can is doing doing that out of their own.
3: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yes.
0: Yes, Uh, many people here will be going back to places that don't have communities resembling this at all. Um, Often, uh, this comes up at the end of lots of retreats. Sometimes you can find just one person in the town that you go back to who is also a meditator. Perhaps it's not this form, it's perhaps better if it is. And if you can just meet once a week and sit together for an hour and then just talk about your experience, that can be very helpful. That's part of why um, it is helpful from time to time to come to places like this so that we can be around like-minded people and uh, be supported in what we're doing instead of always being the odd person out. Any, Any other questions or comments, especially on daily life? Oh, sorry.
6: practice but mainly sitting in daily life are, feel very different than what they are here. Mm-hmm. We've all mentioned or you've mentioned quite a few times about uh, here being a protected environment and where we can get more calm and, mm-hmm. and that's how it feels here but when we get back to to daily life where we have jobs and lots and of and anxiety and everything. <coughs> I find it that it's like um, very often in the job, during the job, it's like there's a storm all around us. And we're trying to stay calm and be efficient there. <coughs> and then we come back home and try to sit, and then the storm is inside. And it's, it's a very different sitting than here. Yes. So if
0: staying three-quarters of an hour or an hour with that storm inside can be rather trying. Yes. um, Wisdom can help us there as well. See, again, there's some unnecessary suffering because of a comparison between that situation and this situation. Let me give you an example. Uh, Many of you will drive out of here tomorrow. The first time I saw this, I just roared with laughter, it just seemed so, such a humorous uh, way of seeing how wisdom can come in, in strange ways sometimes. This is a, an intentional environment, so that means, and this is an expression of the Buddhist teaching, that everything is, is the way it is because of causes and conditions. And So we've intentionally created a set of causes and conditions that are designed to maximize calmness and self-understanding. And this, these uh, the particular factors that we've silenced and you know, all the things that are done here, it's an ancient way. It's not something we cooked up. We've had to do, uh, tailor it to this country, but the, the basic principles are identical. But those are causes and conditions. So we've created an, an environment that optimizes, let's say, calm and the willingness and interest in self-understanding. And so when you're in this environment, since the mind and we are not inherent, we are an arising that's due to these causes and conditions, it's possible for, let's say, a level of calm and perhaps joy or whatever concentration to develop. But when these causes and conditions change, according to the teaching itself, That is, the possibilities of having these mind states becomes less because you now have a different set of causes and conditions. And so I remember after one long retreat, uh, it was as if every mile closer to Boston, you know, uh, first it was just leaving IMS behind. Then it was... uh, Leaving Barry behind. Then somehow the towns got larger, and suddenly there were gas stations, and then there were restaurants, and then there were other cars, and there were police cars, and then there were, you know, big, you know, and as the causes and conditions kept changing, I saw my samadhi get wrecked, you know, just like go down the tubes. Okay. And so the first reaction to that was annoyance, and it was negative. And then I realized, far out, this is what, of course, you know, the, as the causes and conditions change and you see your samadhi just starting to fade away, but you're mindful of it, and you're aware of it, and that's really good practice. Not convinced, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let's say you, uh, you come home. See, the practice is working with what is. So you come home from a day that, just as you described, if you could not be in the past or in the future, but when you sit, you are with whatever life has given you in that moment. And in that moment, it's given you, let's say, the restlessness that has come out of a a day such as you've described. If you're in the present, then that's the practice always. After all, even in this place, you probably have had some times that are worse here than what you have back in Montreal, right? Okay, so that if you stick to the present... Okay. But the guideline... I understand. Well then, why don't you come and move in and become a long-term yogi? <laughs> no. Okay. You see, so that since you've decided to go back to Montreal, then you have to live according to to your particular situation. Now, wisdom can help us there. It loosens that tightness of wanting things to be a certain way. And again, but I'm I'm not talking about passivity or fatalism. Even on that example of the highway. In fact, as you begin to see that your samadhi is falling away because you didn't realize how much it was dependent on the conditions as you see that it's amazing suddenly you become alert again so forget about the past forget about the future when it comes time to sit be with what's there and if restlessness is there you don't then be with it okay maybe one more thing yeah I
5: think part of it is- live our lives and see what activities are actually necessary and what aren't what speeches, is what people are um, to simplify life to the point where the storm isn't so strong mm-hmm. so, and, and I think if that's done in an intentional way then the difference between here and there in other words we can change the conditions we don't have to simply respond
0: yes uh, Eric do you mean something like this Um it seems to be a, a kind of a, a trend, let's say, at the beginning. And I don't know how long the beginning is. One stage. You come home from retreats and, let's say, you're enthusiastic. You find that this is valuable here or somewhere else. And then you try to fit meditation in around your already existing schedule. And as the practice gets deeper, something quite different goes on. It's no longer you're trying to Squeeze a few minutes here and a few minutes there, but you suddenly the the practice itself becomes a very high priority, perhaps the highest. At which point you start to reorganize your life, and you start to see, let's say, old habits, things that you've done for many, many years that used to be fulfilling, but aren't anymore. And yet we've been the momentum, we've been rolling on, doing it and doing it, and because of your uh, interest that comes from the, the uh, growing. Interest in the practice, um, you start to reorganize your life in order to protect your. Let's. I'm just talking about sitting practice now, and you do that. Is that kind of what you mean? But, but it's not
3: simply a question of protecting the sitting practice.
5: But yeah. actually, every circumstance in our life, what is valuable and what isn't, clearing
0: it Yes, exactly. I, it's not limited to the sitting. Uh, some people. Um, for example, return from retreats like this and realize that they are working incredibly hard to make lots of money to buy lots of things. and Because there's an unexamined assumption, even though they may not say that because they have say the right things, we've all read the right books, an enormous back-breaking burden of work to pay all of those bills so that our life is fulfilling. And the simplicity of living here sometimes has resulted in people realizing they don't need a good deal of the things that, they're, that they think they need or that have kind of crept up on them through, uh, inadvertently and suddenly start to simplify their life. In the extreme it could be voluntary simplicity, but where certain things are dropped and therefore you don't need as much money. And therefore, you suddenly find life becomes a little bit more pleasant. Uh, it's not unusual. It does happen. Is it something like that? Okay, last one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in Cambridge? Mm. Mm-hmm. there there are two valuable things that as I hear you there are two valuable things there and it's a choice as to which one you want to develop both of them are valuable and you can do both at different times in life one is you've gotten to a certain point let's say in the the stillness etc. by being here you could instead of going outside to test yourself as you put it which is a valid and extremely valuable thing you could reinvest that energy back into the sitting life and stay here for another few months and go to deeper levels of inner understanding. And that is extremely helpful. Another thing you can do, which is also valuable, is that you've come to a certain level and now you want to go outside and let the world teach you some things about yourself. Uh, personally, what I've found is that, uh, I, as you can imagine, I value these retreats very much for myself uh, doing them. I, I do them still, and uh, uh, I don't have words for them. I, I don't have a vocabulary rich enough how, how much I value it. And despite that, or in addition to that, I found that then when I go back to, to Cambridge, uh, no matter how deep my samadhis were and how all the wonderful things that have happened on a long retreat here or somewhere else or in Thailand, wherever. When I come back to Cambridge, uh, certain buttons get pushed and certain kinds of learning go on that didn't seem to come up in the retreat. And that is another kind of learning which I value very much. And it doesn't feel that I'm stagnant because I'm unable to have, let's say, long sittings over an extended period of time. And then the time comes of going back. It can be a very beautiful rhythm of learning from the world and then dropping the world and coming here and going inside in certain ways that are easier to do when we're in places like this. Could we have a few moments' silence, please? Small enlightenment goes to the country. Big enlightenment goes to the city. Walk a bit until tea time, please.